Judy Carmichael's Jazz Inspired is produced in association with Jazz Times. Composer Maria Schneider is one of a handful of musicians to receive Grammys in multiple genres, both in the classical and jazz categories, and for her collaboration with David Bowie. Her latest double CD, Data Lords, examines our relationship with the digital and natural worlds with evocative compositions and an accompanying treatise on the subject that I feel should be required reading. Marie is a thoughtful, articulate advocate for the arts, so I knew we would have a stimulating, inspiring conversation. And we did. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. I loved the booklet that came with the CD. It's so beautiful, the artwork and everything. So to have something as extensive and wonderful and poetic and meaningful as yours. I just loved, and I want to quote you to you to start out, because I loved what you said about you. You were talking about our devices keeping us from being creative, and you said that it deprives us of the greatest high in life, the freedom and space to imagine and create within our own private interior. But it takes facing silence, space, and even discomfort for creative thinking to fire. And I thought that was significant all the time, but especially now that we're all isolated. I see who's having trouble with that and who's embracing this, separate from not having money and all those real tragic problems. But but who's taking advantage of this time? I think now people don't even get the second to consider whether they would leave that space because it is such a knee-jerk reaction now that when there's a moment of space to grab the phone and see if somebody texted you or to check your emails or, you know, the notifications coming from the news or whatever. I mean, all these services, they, they are inundating us with things and there's this huge competition for uh, our attention Um, from big data companies. And so we have been made to be addicted. And so it's, it, it's a hard thing for somebody now. I mean, it used to be just a natural thing. There was space. The phone wasn't ringing. I mean, think back before even answering machines. If you weren't home, (laughs) they, they, you know, they tried you again later when you're home. There was space. There was, I, I was just teaching yesterday. I told kids, when I was in college, there was one phone booth at the end of the hallway. All we had in our room was a record player and a finite number of records. And we listened to them again and again. It was such a deep listening, a deep experiencing. And I don't think people do that anymore. They don't have the space. They And it's hard to make the space. I think that... It's something you can remind yourself, though, because you're reminding me, even years ago when I was making my first trips to Europe, so this would be in the 80s, I remember that some a group of men f- who were fans, but fans of Boogie Woogie and kind of music I was playing, invited me over 
to listen to some records. So, and I thought we were going to put them on the background, have a little party. But no, it was these five guys. They served us all a glass of wine. They had the cheese and they put on a record. And I immediately said, oh, I love this recording. This is Art Tatum in 30s, well, whatever. And they looked at me and put their hand up to make me stop talking. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I stopped and I realized that even though I'd heard this record a hundred times, that I hadn't listened that intently and that long. And we just sat there and truly listened. And I learned a lesson then. So even then, I was sort of speeding through things. So I'm an advocate for being able to get back to that. Yeah, maybe that's naive. But I think that if we say, let's listen and we kind of make ourselves have that wonderful situation, which we know is great. Absolutely. And then there's the level two of just forgetting, you know, being a musician and the whole music component. I remember when I was little, just sometimes being bored, you know, what do I do? And it didn't happen often because I loved music. But still, you know, then you'd start thinking, okay, maybe I'm going to make something. What am I going to make? And then you go outside and all of a sudden you find something and you build something and it 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 was um i don't it pushed creativity from us to entertain ourselves and now even the toys and everything they tell us even if you buy legos it's already pre-planned that it's going to be this certain spaceship and this is how you put it together as opposed to here's a box of blocks and make something and i and i just think People are afraid of the blank slate. And and you know, as, as a musician and a creator, the blank slate is scary. It's darn scary. And especially when your livelihood depends on it. But the blank slate is, well, when you face it and you come up with something, it does give you the biggest high in life. Absolutely. My guest, Maria Schneider, and her orchestra from her CD, Data Lords. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. We're, of course, talking during this pandemic, and I've talked to people in all different fields just in my life and how they're doing. 
And I felt that in a way, creative artists, even though this is hitting us harder than a lot of people, that we're used to uncertainty and we're used to embracing that and figuring out strategies to get through it. Do you think that's true? Do you think that we we have a certain uh, practice at this sort of thing? I don't know. Speak to that because you're in the middle of it too. Yeah. Um, what I'm experiencing is different than a lot of people, and I can talk about that. But I think because I have talked to a lot of musicians, yeah, I think musicians are in some ways equipped for that space and in a way craving it because so many musicians are on sort of almost like a treadmill that's in their regular lives, going from gig to gig and just taking whatever comes because you don't know what's going to come tomorrow. So your your life is leading you by a leash. And now all of a sudden, so many musicians, they have this space to do things that they wanted to do. And okay, they're in a financial crisis. But on the other hand, many of them, I think, are... Uh, enjoying something about the space and the choices that it gives them. But for me, it's been different because I just released a record and I'm trying to, uh, I'm doing a lot to put my whole website together, get all the music edited, creating videos, you know, all these things that I do. So I feel like I've just been busier than I've ever been, <laughs> you know, and, and you talk about the digital world. I mean, I am so sucked into the digital world these days. I think I was more in the natural world before the pandemic, just because it's, this is now how I'm, I'm going to make my living now for a good amount of time is through that website. So I have to pay attention to that. And, but it, it does something to you. It does something, I think, physically and emotionally to you to spend too much time on the computer. It's, it's. I feel it. No, I agree, and I, I, I'm glad to hear you say that that the musicians you're talking to, at least some of them, have embraced this space and that they were on a treadmill because. It occurred to me, I read an article yesterday about these flights to nowhere. I'm sure you've heard about this, that some yeah. airlines, because they're all losing money, that you can, in some countries, you can get on the plane and just be on the plane. And then they have a virtual thing like clouds going by as if somebody would want to do that. Or you can just fly, have a fly over, you get on a plane and you fly somewhere, but you don't ever land, it's a round trip, and people are paying for this. Who would want to do that? Well, exactly, but you're a musician and I'm a musician. <laughs> and I thought, you know, I traveled, I was out of town 200 days last year. And to not be traveling, I haven't talked to one musician who isn't sleeping better, who is, uh, they're physically in better shape because they're not on so many planes, myself included. Uh, yes. That as much as I enjoy travel, but I don't enjoy the travel, Mm. I enjoy getting there. <laughs> so yeah. the fact that you react that way, I totally get it. But also this is, we're all having to learn more what to do with the internet, like you say, or with the computer and all of that, with the technical aspects. So it's whether you um, embrace change, which is another thing that I think artists are good at. Yeah. Or should and, be. <laughs> and there's, but there's also this um, dangerous aspect that's happening too with all the streaming because so many people are streaming classes and streaming concerts and you wonder, okay, what is this going to 
replace. And is and the industry, as you know, with licensing and everything, is such a com- complicated mess. And these things aren't compensating the composers, the songwriters correctly. So there's this sort of free for all. Uh, a funny choice of words, free mm, for yeah, all. Yeah, well, exactly. Um, <laughs> pun intended. <laughs> yeah, no pun intended. Um, Freudian slip or whatever they say. There's a free for all going on, and um, I wonder what the fallout is going to be. And and as you know, musicians, we can't afford more fallout from the digital world. You know what? Every stream of income has been so decimated by some aspect of um, the internet and digitization of music that, oh, yet another one? I don't know. It's, no, it's it was t- the first thing I thought of. People thought I was being negative, but th- I, I was saying this in April, mm-hmm. that the first thing I thought of is how this would hurt us even more, mm-hmm. another way to lower the bar mm-hmm. or whatever. And I'm hoping that these uh, concert halls and places that we perform can survive and that hopefully people will be even more anxious to hear things in person, that maybe this will be something that makes them appreciate it even more. We hope, but we don't know. I think so. I mean, I I think so. I think the experience of sitting with other people and enjoying music and having a dinner or whatever it is, or just a concert, or whether it's a club or a concert, I think that... Um, when it comes back, at least for a period, it'll feel like a novelty. Yeah. <laughs> I'm hoping for longer than just a minute. Yeah, we'll see. guest Maria Schneider on Don't Be Evil from her new CD Data Mords. I'm Judy Carmichael and this is Jazz Inspired. So talk about Don't Be Evil. Speaking of, of things going downhill, I don't want to go in this, in this yeah. direction, but I love that because I'll tell you, especially years ago, I did a private party for the hundred top executives of a huge organization. I don't want to name who it is and get sued. But I would never step into that world in just this way. And the CEO got up and talked before the entertainment, me, and was talking about how well they'd done that year. And he had all of this corporate speak, these euphemisms for, he was essentially saying, we haven't destroyed too many lives but we've been able to make all this money without 
ruining this too many companies because that's really what they were saying. They had wiped out other companies to make this money. And then I saw your don't be evil. So talk about this because you expressed it so beautifully. That's why I say everybody has to get this, read this book, but listen to this music because it's great. Well, anyway, can, yeah. On. So, so, well, you know, as I was writing this music, these very dark musical themes started coming out and this one, I heard something sort of sarcastic and sinister. And right away, I thought of that corporate motto of Google. And and I, just from the very first moment I heard that motto, I thought, that is so weird. Who comes up with a motto, don't be evil? I mean, you have to know that there's an evil implicit in your in your business model, <laughs> if you make the t- the bar that you want to reach to not be evil, it, I said when I first premiered this piece at the Newport Jazz Festival, I said it's like going into an ophthalmologist's office and they've got a sign over the door: "We gouge no eyes out." It's like great. Well, congratulations. <laughs> this is isn't this yeah, great? Don't news? make me blind. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so so it's like you know. I, oh dear. So anyway, so as I was writing this piece, it it felt a little bit cathartic to me because, and you know, being a musician, and I think I think the public now is just starting to become aware. We 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 are we were the canaries in the coal mine. You know that we we were the first to have our work used to gather eyeballs. So that, so that these companies could gather data, and of course, they, the decimation of copyright, you know, is an important thing to make it so it's not easy for us to enforce our own copyright. You know, this is all very important for their business model because they need all that music to get all those eyeballs to get to gather all that data, but now. Everybody, you know, everything we do, we know now is something just came up with Facebook. You know how they're crawling around our computers in ways that people didn't know. Um, you know all the ways in which our data is being gathered, and everybody has stories of you know. I said something to my friend, and you know, first thing I know, I'm being served up an ad for it, but I wasn't on the internet. You know, they heard me through my phone or whatever. And all that is then being turned to things that to make us buy things, or to make a company be able to uh, uh, figure out our financial vulnerabilities, so that maybe they don't give us a loan, or they do give us a loan but at a higher rate, or I don't know how it all works, or. They know that we'll pay a higher price for something. Therefore, they sell that information to something. So the cost to us is huge. There's a fantastic documentary. Have you seen The Social Dilemma? 
yet. No, no, I'll have to see it. You have to watch it tonight. Oh, thank you for that. The Social Dilemma, everybody has to watch this. um, Oh, great, thank you. It's on Netflix, and all the people interviewed in The Social Dilemma worked at Google and Facebook. So you're hearing it from the horse's mouth, what's, (laughs) what's going on. It's pretty scary stuff. Is anybody there? I C- just oh, love CQ, this. CQ. Yes, and just talking about your dad and the story, and I watched your video. It's and talk about that how people can see that and all of that too, which I thought was great. The artist share. So talk about this. So uh, through artist share, I, I do make a lot of videos that allow people to kind of see behind the scenes. And while doing one of those, this man. I, I saw the video and he noticed that behind me was a picture of my home or maybe I held it up. I don't remember, but it had, it was our house and it had these two huge 80 foot towers. And I never thought really, I mean, that that's unusual. I was showing, oh, this is our house, you know? <laughs> so this guy <laughs> writes and he says, was your dad a radio ham? And I was like, oh, wow, he knew those were ham radio towers. I mean, maybe that's obvious to a radio ham. And I said, yeah. And he said, what's his call sign? And I said, W0ABF. And then he, he started talking to me about ham radio. And I, the, there are still so many radio hams. I got to tell you, when this record came out, you cannot believe how many participants people that buy through my site wrote to me, I'm a ham. Oh my God. I, it's I crazy. didn't realize that. That's great. With the internet, you would think, you know, if you can just send an email to anybody, why would you do that? But I think it's, it's, it's sort of like playing an LP, you know, it's this connectedness in the LP. You see the, the, the ridges and the, the sound vibration coming from how the needle hits that with, with the um, ham radio, there's engineering there. There's the radio waves and, so anyway, he, he was saying how it was about people connecting with the world. And he said, but it was totally different. You had to, when you called, when you were looking for somebody, either in Morse code or in language, you would say CQ, CQ, which is literally seek you. This is my dad's call sign. This is W0ABF. Then that person could look up that call sign and know where you lived and who you were. So there was total accountability, transparency, and you weren't allowed to do commercial business. So that totally contrasts the internet too. And then he said the Morse code, the da 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 all the, the longs and shorts, that was a binary language traveling on a on an elect on through electricity. So it was the first binary language for communication or or traveling, I guess, on electricity. So it's the same as ones and zeros with the internet or with the computers. So um, he said, you should do something using Morse code and, um, you know, about ham radio. And I, st- it, boy, it was a hard piece to write. First of all, I don't often get an idea to write a piece about something. 
Normally, I write and the music tells me what the piece is about. Oh, interesting. So this was very different. It was unusual. And um, and a tall order to write a piece where all rhythms are Morse code messages. But I, so, so I went <laughs> oh, to wow. a Morse code generator and started typing in words, you know, bad words. Some naughty words, you know, but they were words like, um, and I ended up coming with, well, CQ had a great rhythmic sound. B dee 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 da da. That's like, you know, it's got like a lilt to it. And, but then, you know, greed had a, a really great um, rhythm. Uh, help had baba do dot, bop, boo da, do dot, boo da, da, da. That was help. And, um, you know, so they each, so I had greed, power, help, SOS. Um, uh, AI data, you know, and then I had uh, this is W0ABF, my dad's call oh, sign is in this there. This is too. great. So, anyway, it was really in the end fun to write this piece. And, um, and I wrote a very kind of free open solo for the tenor sax, Donnie McCaslin. Um, and he's like the human voice coming out of in the beginning is sort of this atmosphere, and you hear all these Morse code messages coming through the, through the radio waves. And then he's this human voice that comes out. And then at the end of his solo, he encounters artificial intelligence. And that's the second solo. So it was sort of a, um, it was a process to get this piece together. But I, <laughs> I really like it. I think it's one of the most unique things I've written. And, and it, it was a torture to do it, but it was fun.
Maria Schneider in her orchestra on her composition, CQCQ, Is Anybody There? From her CD, Data Lords. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. Our show is made possible in part with generous support from Steinway & Sons. Additional support is provided by Jazz Times Magazine, providing entertaining and provocative coverage of the jazz scene since 1970. On the web at jazztimes.com. For a schedule of upcoming programs, visit our website at jazzinspired.com. You can listen to Jazz Inspired on all the usual podcast platforms and email us at info at jazzinspired.com or visit us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Stride Queen. Although we broadcast on NPR stations, we're an independent production, not funded by NPR. We're funded primarily by your donations. So please visit jazzinspired.com to chip in. No gift is too small. And please tell your friends about Jazz Inspired and help us spread the word. I'm talking with composer Maria Schneider about her new CD, Datum Wards, and working on her composition, CQCQ Is Anybody There?, where she used the language of Morse code to create the piece. She said the process was hideous, but it was fun when it was over. Something that we can describe and describe and describe, and it's impossible to understand until you have that experience, is what it's like to work on something for a sustained period of time, work very hard on it, even torture yourself, like you say, the process was hideous, that unbelievable satisfaction when you've accomplished it. And I know athletes talk about it. People talk about this. But but this is, we're talking about something about a real mental and emotional engagement. And years ago, many years ago, I can't remember how the conversation came up, but a friend of mine said, because she saw me work on different things and different projects, all of this. And she said in an envious way, she said, you know, I was never taught the joy of delayed gratification. Mm. And she struggled with her weight her whole life. She's had lots of issues with this, like she needs that immediate gratification. And I never had anybody express that to me. But 
even you describing this process, I know the joy myself and I can see it on your face because we're looking at each other. And that's a very hard thing in this age and what our theme is of this show of teaching people because now we do have immediate gratification with the internet. As wonderful as it is and as frightening as it is, you could just go right to something. You don't even have to think anymore. You can just type it in and and, uh, get the answer. Speak to that. Well, so this is interesting. You brought this up because, um, uh, let's see, I guess it was the end of the 90s. I had gone to Brazil. I met the great musician Egberto Gismonti, whose music is some of my favorite music on the planet. And um, I was going through a kind of a, uh, you know, just a period where I was like a fallow field. I just couldn't come up with music. And I was feeling really depressed about it. And he said, you have to get this book. And it was called Finding Serenity in the Age of Anxiety by a Mm. man named, uh, I think, Robert Gerzon, G-E-R-Z-O-N. And I bought the book and it was phenomenal. And it talks about many, many things. But one of the things that really stuck with me, and I talk to students about it a lot, and it's on this subject. He talks about how in life we have three zones, a rest zone, a comfort zone and a growth zone. And we tend to most, and it's important that you spend some real time in the the rest zone. I am guilty of not spending time in the rest zone. And the growth zone, in order to get into the growth zone, you have to face fear because you can't grow unless you go into some area that you've never done before reach for it, which is a little bit what you're saying, reach for it. And then when you succeed, if you succeed, you grow and you get that tremendous satisfaction. And then in the middle is the comfort zone. And the comfort zone is generally where we spend most our time. But he said, what's happening in our society is that most people spend most of their time in that comfort zone. They're not really resting. They're not facing their fears to reach that growth zone, and they get depressed in that comfort zone. And when I read that, I, I, that book, you know, I thought, yeah, I have to just face my fear, you know. And every, you know, as a, as a musician, every time you sit down, you face that blank, blank page. There's the fear that nothing will come. You know, it, you, your, your life depends on always coming up with new ideas. I'm scared of it every single time. But when you do it and you face it and you sit there and it might be days or even weeks of nothing coming, eventually something does if you put in the time and if you, you face your fear. And for me, that CQ piece was a, a facing of fear. And I had three rehearsals. The first two, I hated what I wrote. I started from scratch. I completely rewrote the piece and I was going to give up after the second one. And um, the second rehearsal, every time I rehearse, it cost me $3,000 because I pay everybody in the band 150 bucks, which isn't even a lot, but, you know, it's No, something. but it's a huge band, too. It's a huge right. band, and it, it adds up. And so I was ready to give up. I was so upset, and I had to go to, to London to work at Ronnie Scott's with the Ronnie Scott's band, which was really, they were hysterically funny and good musicians, but really hysterically funny. Anyway... I pull up to the to the hotel with my cab, and the hotel's name was CQ. 
<laughs> so I said, okay, I have to continue. I felt like it was a sign from dad. Pinky, you get back to work. You're going to do the CQ piece. So, you know, and so I faced it. But anyway, um, yeah, I highly recommend that book. And, and that book came before we faced these times where I think people are even more stuck in this malaise of the comfort zone of, you know, binge watching movies and stuff, which is fun and great. But what are you doing for yourself? You know, putting something you've never done before out there, risking it so that you can reach some new level. And I think it's harder and harder to do that. Talk about Stone Song. I love this and the whole concept of it. And you talked about the similarity of this process with jazz, which I really like too, of making these. So talk about that. So uh, there's a potter named Jack Troy, wonderful potter who does uh, mainly wood-fired things. And he's a great teacher. He's actually a wonderful poet too. And I bought this piece of pottery from him uh, that it was shaped like a big stone. And when I when I went to uh, his show to see his pottery, and he was a, a, a pottery teacher of my partner, Mark. So we went to say hi and everything. And I said, oh, what are those? And he said, oh, pick one up. It's called Ishinosa Sayaki. So I picked it up. He said, shake it. And this little stone was inside. And I said, oh, man, I got to buy this. I want It was so whimsical and fun. And, just, and it was beautiful, too. There were several of them. So I brought it and I put it on my piano next to me that night. And then I just sat down and I just, you know, came up with this first little, uh, you know, this little. Yeah, yeah, that's whimsical, right. Yeah. And I thought, oh, this little stone just kind of bumping, rolling over, falls on a new side. Then it sits there for a week and then truck comes along and hits the gravel and spits it to the side. And, you know, so I thought, I'm going to do a piece about a stone, what it's like to be a stone, just being, and so improv is, it had a lot of space, a lot of, there's no tempo in it. It's all kind of um, herky-jerky, and it requires, well, requires, it showcases what's most wonderful in my band, and it's everybody's listening skills. Um, Steve Wilson on soprano and, you can hear how uh, the instruments in the rhythm section around are just listening and reacting to each other so much. And so it is like that. They're all like little stones hitting each other and bumping. And um, so I, I'm glad you like this piece because I really love it myself.
I love that you talked about in playing Stone Song how your musicians listen to each other because it was something that that struck me listening to this that as jazz musicians if we're playing something that has a groove we all find that groove and we we choose musicians who feel the groove in the same spot and then yeah. we ride along on that groove and if it's a symphonic piece you've got your conductor of course nobody can see me on radio but I'm conducting yeah <laughs> and but this is very different Yes. And they've got to be listening and and reacting in a different way, almost like actors. They always say actors say that it, acting is reacting. Yes. And I felt this was that kind of way that was really wonderful and, and, and unusual. Yeah. Um, it, my years with my band has, I, I, and these musicians, it's, I think the way that it's influenced me the most as a composer is... Um, knowing that that listening element is going to be there and wanting to leave enough space in my music so that that aspect of these musicians can come out. And I, I do have pieces that are very intricately composed and the soloist is more like a single improviser over that landscape, that harmonic landscape. I have a piece about hang gliding called hang gliding that is like that. But this piece it is really handing it over with trust and faith with those musicians to really be, um, to really uh, show what's most special about a jazz musician. And that is the listening and the interacting, that they're not just showing what they play and what they practice, but that it is an in the moment uh, conversation. And it, it really I think in our times, it's something so special. I was thinking about it a lot when the presidential debates were going on and hearing, um, you know, people speak. And if I felt like each side had their things they wanted to say and get out, but nobody really wants to and is willing to put something out there with a question, wanting to hear what the other side has to say so that they might come up with something better together. I mean, this is what I wish our democracy was about. This is what I wish our leaders would do. This is what I wish Congress would do, is to behave more like jazz musicians do. That is listening and having what you improvise being better than it ever would on on your own because you're interacting and reacting to another person. So um, it's, I, I've thought about it a lot in these last, in this last hideous year. <laughs> <laughs> I completely agree. I, I thought the same thing during the debates and, and jazz musicians, great jazz musicians are such great listeners. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing we do create and I've talked a lot about this to people that we are then giving ourselves up to that, to that, if it's a group that you're playing with, that their ideas are making your ideas better. And we're coming up with something we couldn't possibly do on our own by that intense listening, which is a beautiful metaphor for life. Because mm -hmm. if we're all listening to each other, we are going to come up with something much greater yeah. than we can on our own. And I think that's the point of this.
My guest, Maria Schneider and her orchestra from Maria's new CD, Data Lords on Bluebirds. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. There's a wonderful book called, I think it's called Composing a Life. It was by Margaret Mead's daughter, and her name's Catherine something. And anyway, I, I read it years ago. Um, and it really is about improvising a life, and it, it specifically talks about women. Um, her premise was, whether it's true or not, I don't know, is that she thought because of, um, I think because of childbirth or something I never did, um, <laughs> that women somehow are more prepared for um, not just, they, she's, her premise was that men more focus on a goal and things that impede that goal, they kind of push away. And she felt that women more kind of take things as they come and, oh, this happened, I'm going to move over here and Im- improvise a life. Now, I don't know if that's a female or male thing, but I know that's a quality that I have in my life. And it's a better I've, way to live. Well, for me, it is. It might not make everybody comfortable. I feel it. For me, it's, I don't know, maybe there would have been a better way, but I don't know what it is. But <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what the alternative was, you know, but I do know that it's brought really fun things in my life that I could have never fathomed or imagined. I would have never dreamed the wonderful things and opportunities that have come to me largely because I left myself open. Mm. Um, for for those things and didn't pre-plan too much. Just the fact that you're conscious that that's your attitude tells me that you're open to those opportunities because I've had people say that to me about them. Go, well, how did you get to do so-and-so, so-and-so, whatever it is, even if it's meeting somebody. But my eyes were open to it and I thought, oh, going in that direction, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, going. And I think a lot of people, as you were saying it, they they get on this path and they're that's the way they're going to keep going. And they uh, anything outside that is more of a distraction than a possible opportunity, which is what you're saying. You're saying, oh, there's something over here. And I remember when you and I talked years ago, when I had you on the show the first time, one of the things that struck me, I was thinking back on this, was... We were talking about jazz and when it sometimes can be almost a competitive, macho thing, that everybody's on stage and who's going to play the chorus better and Mm -hmm. that kind of thing, who's going to take their chorus, and that that was never your attitude and that was never mine, that it was more we're all supporting each other and how can we make everyone play better. And I know that those are the musicians you're drawn to, and you've just talked about your band, because that's who they are, and you've put that band together. It's cooperative. Yeah, and and also a lot of my music is designed so that if there's two soloists following up each other, they both have different solo sections to play, and that solo section has a different role in the piece, and it's not just about that soloist showing what they can play, but they also have to emerge in a in a a way that is copacetic with what the piece is, and they have to leave and finish in a way that almost makes the what's written sound so inevitable that it almost feels improvised. This is this is what I'm looking for, that there's this seamlessness between the improvisation and the composition. And so um, when musicians 
have are given that responsibility or that role, or if one is leading to the next one or whatever, um, I think it's good for them because it gets them a little bit out of the ego and also the self consciousness of like, oh my God, what what do I play? And it's more like I have to. This is my role. I've, I'm going to do this. It's more like a, you know, it's it's a it, it gives them something to focus on rather than you know, am I good enough? <laughs> <laughs> Which is never a good focus. If we all go there too easily. Oh, you know, one thing I've I've learned over the years working with bands because for years, you know, in the beginning, I'd work with a band and think, oh, what are they thinking of me? You know, and is this okay? And do they think I'm adequate or you know, whatever these kind of they aren't such specific thoughts, but it's an overall thing. And one day I I realized I looked at everybody and I realized that everybody is thinking that about themselves. <laughs> so my role is really to forget about me and help them to get forget about themselves. Right. And try to really get everybody focused on we're we're all contributing something to this music. We want to make this thing here. And when you get everybody out of that self doubt and that self judgment. And they get into that place. That's when then the music rises, and it's like, wow, what was that? And and it brings everybody so close because they made something together that moved people and even moved them. That's the best. The Sun Waited for Me. This was a uh, piece that originally was written for Don Upshaw, the great soprano with the Australian Chamber Orchestra. And it was uh, in that version, I called it How Important It Must Be. Um, and it, it's based on a poem by Ted Couser. The whole That whole uh, piece was a song cycle. It was called Winter Morning Walks. And I chose nine poems from his book, Winter Morning Walks. And Ted Couser wrote these poems when he had had cancer. And he couldn't be in the sun. And he was just generally very depressed and just not writing. And then one day at the beginning of winter, he got up early one morning in the dark because he couldn't be in the sun because of his treatment. So he got up early and he went walking. And when he came home, he felt the inspiration to write a poem and he wrote it on a postcard and sent it to the novelist Jim Harrison, who was a close friend of his. He did that for a hundred days and the final poem he wrote on the vernal equinox. And 
that's what this is based on. And the poem goes like this. How important it must be to someone that I am alive and walking and that I have written these poems. This morning, the sun stood right at the end of the road and waited for me. You had this at the end of this beautiful project that is so important and so wonderful. And it was the perfect ending, and it's the perfect ending for this show and this great conversation. So talk about that, why you chose it, and after all of this. I felt that this piece somehow um, is a reminder that I, that this world, this beautiful natural world, our relationships, our connectedness, this world of inspiration, of silence, you know, the world that's not demanding things from us but awaiting our attention, that it is there waiting for us if we open ourselves to it and let ourselves be drawn to it. I'm such a fan. Thank you so much. It's great to see you again. I love this project, and I hope it isn't so long until we see each other again. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on your show. You've been listening to my conversation with Maria Schneider. I hope you'll join me here next time when I talk with another creative person about how jazz has inspired their life and work. I'm Judy Carmichael, the host and producer of Jazz Inspired. My production engineer is Curtis Heidoff. You can listen to Jazz Inspired on all the usual podcast platforms or at jazzinspired.com. 
Our opening music was Airmail Special, and the mid-break music is a smooth one from my CD, High on Fats and Other Stuff. The closing music is Old Fashioned Love from my CD trio. I'm on piano with my Cashamon sax and Chris Flory on guitar. Judy Carmichael's Jazz Inspired is made possible with generous support from our listeners and from Steinway and Sons and Jazz Times. For a schedule of upcoming programs, to sign up for our email newsletter, or to find out how you can personally support Jazz Inspired, visit our website at jazzinspired.com. You can email us at info at jazzinspired.com or visit us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Stride Queen. For more information, visit judycarmichael.com or jazzinspired.com. Maria Schneider's Data Lords was a fan-funded Artist Share project. Visit artistshare.com for more information. <laughs>